This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. John Ward has chronicled the drama of American politics for two decades. As a White House and National Affairs correspondent, he has covered two presidential administrations and also elections. Currently, he is senior political correspondent for Yahoo News and is the host of The Long Game podcast, which looks at the value of key institutions in American culture, such as the political parties, the media, and the church. He's the author of the book Camelot's End, Kennedy versus Carter and the Fight that Broke the Democratic Party. The book was published earlier this year, and Ward and his family live in Washington, D.C. I'm pleased to welcome John Ward to Thinking in Public. John, you're now senior political correspondent, and uh, the day-to-day headlines are very much uh, your interest, and, uh, and Americans read your work uh, eagerly. But in this book, you go back to the 1980 race for the Democratic presidential nomination. Uh, I, I want to look at big questions of history and meaning, but my first question is simply, uh, as young as you are, how did 1980 become enough of an interest that it, it ended up with this book? Well, it's kind of an uh, indirect uh, answer to that, and thank you for having me on. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Um, the indirect answer is that I I may be in the news business of covering things that are day to day, but I really do have a deep hunger for uh, deeper stories, for more complete stories, and books have always been a passion of mine, uh, probably you know one of my great passions, and so I've always wanted to write books and. So I had been on the lookout for good stories that could be turned into book form uh, narratives. And uh, I happened upon uh, a conversation in 2013 at a, at a Democratic National Committee meeting uh, between two operatives. I was in the middle of this conversation with them, and they started reminiscing about Ted Kennedy uh, and Jimmy Carter and Carter chasing a drunken Kennedy around the stage on the final night of the convention, and I just didn't really know a whole lot about uh, any of that night or or really the Kennedy candidacy, and it struck me as something that people of a certain age who maybe if they hadn't, maybe even if they had lived through it, they'd find it interesting, but certainly there's plenty of people now who, who weren't even alive at that time uh, who I think would, would find it interesting, and, and as I kind of just probed into the story, I realized nobody had done Everybody focuses on 1980 as being the year of Reagan, and and nobody had really told this story, so I I kind of launched into it at that point. Well, the fun thing about doing thinking in public is that I really only talk about the books I think are worth talking about and uh, with the authors I want to talk to. And uh, this very closely – and by the way, your your book is just outstanding. I had a hard time putting it down, partly because I'm a political junkie and uh, the intersection of – of Christianity and culture and politics has, has been my fascination for years. But I came of age politically uh, – I'm about 20 years older than you are. I came to age politically in the middle of all this. So the the, the yeah. first presidential – the first president I remember is Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the first race I remember is 68, but I, but I was only nine years old, didn't understand much. 1972 um, – we were living 30 miles from where both the uh, the Democratic and the Republican National Conventions were held in Miami Beach. And uh, yeah, yeah, just a fascinating uh, worldview clash, but not quite, nothing like what was coming. And then in 1976, I worked for Ronald Reagan's campaign as a student volunteer organizing high school students for Reagan in South Florida. And uh, And yet 1976 was a very weird election for a Southern Baptist teenager. Yeah. Because you worked for Reagan in seventy six. I said? worked for Reagan in nineteen seventy six. Then Governor Reagan. Wow. And I was. I, okay. I, I mean, I was in it for for. I, I was in it for the battle of ideas, and uh, that, mm-hmm. that kind of was my uh, my uh, the forging of my political self. And yeah. uh, but the big question that was always asking me is, you know, how would you not vote for Jimmy Carter, the Southern Baptist deacon, you Southern Baptist teenager? And uh, right. I, I, I had reasons, by the way, and, and I have I have personal respect for President Carter, with whom I've had engagement. He's actually been my guest on Thinking in Public, and yeah. uh, I, I feel like I know him because I think he's just like my grandparents, Southern Baptist grandparents. I mean, uh-huh. I, even even the way he talks and thinks. Uh, but I never really knew Jimmy Carter, the politician, and then I became editor of the Christian Index in Georgia. So, all that to say, the 1980 campaign, I was back in for Reagan. 
But the interesting thing that I thought was impossible was that there could be a race on the Democratic side and that Ted Kennedy, of all people, would turn out to be a genuinely credible contender against the incumbent Democratic president of the United States. And uh, and Ted Kennedy, of all things, and uh, and yet – uh, you tell the story brilliantly, but I just want to ask you point blank as a, as someone who covers yeah. uh, uh, the, uh, politics today. In retrospect, doesn't it look even odder th- th- than when you first think about it that Ted Kennedy came that close to actually winning the Democratic presidential nomination in 1980? Well, odd. I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people ask me why did he get in, and I think if you look at the just the political realities of the fall of 1979. It, I don't. I don't think there's any way he could have avoided being sucked into this vortex. I don't. Again, I think the the question around Ted Kennedy always is that did he actually want to run yeah. himself? Um, and and then when you fast forward to the spring of 1980, after all that's happened, and then the summer and the convention. Um, I don't know. I I guess I just haven't thought of it in terms of how odd it was yeah. i mean i think i'm there's something behind your question that i'm yeah, not getting yeah it, well, so, and, and, and I, like? I think it's the fact that i'm 20 years older uh chappaquiddick is, so in other words right. i i lived this chronologically so i I, right. I lived enough to see ted kennedy's the obvious successor to uh to, to jack and bobby and then right. for it to be an open question as to whether ted kennedy could even maintain credibility to stay in his uh, his senatorial seat and uh, that's what basically knocked – and you, you say this in your book. That's what knocked him out of the 72 race. But, in, right. uh, uh, but, but now in, uh, in 1980, um, I, I don't know. It, it, I can just tell you that uh, it, at least in, in my part of the world in 1980, this seemed inconceivable but real. Yeah, well, I guess what 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 is kind of behind, the explanation for your question, I guess if you're a Republican in 1980, a conservative in 1980, looking at why the Democrats might even consider nominating Kennedy, I think, you know, obviously everybody's familiar with the sort of mythology of the Kennedys and how appealing that is to Democrats. Um, maybe you don't get it on a, an emotional level, yeah. but it's much talked about. Um, and I get I it at an historical out, level. I, I get it at the observational yeah. level. Yeah. Right, right. And I think, you know, um, I hope that the expl- that the description of Teddy's speech at the convention and his dream will never die, uh, uh, you know, the ending of that speech, I hope that that sort of brings across some of the emotional wallop yeah. of it. I certainly understand it better now after having uh, written this book. Um, but I think the other side of the coin is just how um, alien Jimmy Carter was to so many portions of the Democratic Party. Uh, he was really an outsider in so many ways. He was not from Washington. He didn't have right. connections to Washington. And he kind of worked actively during his presidency to keep that uh, that way. He didn't want to be affiliated with the Washington establishment. Um, and his aides were both arrogant and insecure. They were young, they were immature, and they kind of went out of their way to thumb their nose at people like Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill. And so uh, you add all of that together, you put the fact that uh, Carter has, I mean, the year 1979 was just a uh, terrible horrific year indeed for for Jimmy Carter and and for the country um, and so his political fortunes were so bad that um, the door was wide open to somebody and uh, it was kind of long enough since Chappaquiddick that the Kennedy campaign and the Kennedy inner circle thought well maybe people have forgotten about this it turns out that they really hadn't but it was kind of part of their Overconfidence and arrogance and entitlement that led them to miscalculate on that, I think. Let's rewind history just a little bit and go back to, uh, to 1976. Jimmy Carter emerges on the political horizon. Uh, one-term governor of Georgia and Georgia governors were term limited uh, then. Right. And, uh, you know, at Thanksgiving, uh, now infamously, he announces to the family that he's going to run for president and his own mother, known to the country as Miss Lillian, asks honestly, president of what? And uh, that's how implausible, you know, it seemed uh, even in 1974 that uh, that Jimmy Carter would be running for president. And yet you point out the fact that he was a man of indomitable will 
and yeah. uh, and politically, he uh, he worked the caucus and primary system such that he really developed the modern way that presidents run for the office. That's correct. I mean, you mentioned that 1968 was the first convention you remember, and that's a really momentous uh, convention year because right. that's the year that prompts massive changes to the way that our primaries function. This is another thing that being an English literature major with very little sort of history in the in the process of our politics, um, this was a revelation to me that you know, we haven't always nominated presidents the way that we have. And it bears some uh, it bears some relevance to what we have seen, even with uh, the way that Trump got elected or got nominated in right. 2016. You, ha- you have a Republican prime party that majority of the party doesn't really want Trump to be the nominee. Well, before 1972, up until 1968, uh, the party would have been able to really block somebody like Trump from sure. being the, the nominee. Uh, but after 68, that changes. Yeah, and in 1968, the the Democrats really did put forward an establishment choice uh, with Hubert Humphrey. Right. But the Republicans right. in 1968 also had the experience of all of a sudden having the primaries really determine uh, at least uh, from then onwards, the nominee, because Richard Nixon, who just lost, uh, you know, eight years mm-hmm. previously to uh, to JFK, he actually wins and comes in with more primary votes than uh, than mm-hmm. anyone else had in 1968 to the Republican convention, which uh, which closed off the challenge from uh, from Ronald Reagan on the right and Nelson Rockefeller on the left. And so from from then on, on the Republican side, also uh, the primaries mm-hmm. become uh, become so important. But Jimmy Carter knows the playbook, and the, the Democratic Party had to change its uh, its nominating process after the chaos and the riots of 1968. And, right. and so you arrive at 1976, and there's a huge group of Democrats running for president, just massive. Yeah. And Jimmy Carter's not on the front of anybody's list. No, and I think going back to your point about his comment to his mother and, and the early planning stages, it gets to his ambition and his will that he started planning for a run for president in 1972, I believe it is. I think that's when the first conversations were with his kitchen cabinet. Um, And yeah, there were 17 candidates in 1976, not quite as many as we have now in 2020, but very close. And uh, he was really considered to be, I guess, if you were to con- compare him to somebody in the current Democratic field, I don't know who would be a good comparison for that. It's not he's not quite a, a Yang. Um, he's more like maybe a, a Senator Bennett um, yep. Yep. or uh, Bullock from Montana. You know, that might be a good comparison, a, a sort of a, a rural Western state, not much, not really well known, not close to the establishment uh, seaboard city. And um, he's considered to be an afterthought, but because his campaign knows that you have to really focus on Iowa and then you have to run hard in every primary and focus on delegates, uh, they're really prepared to kind of outlast the other candidates. Um, And there's an interesting story in the book as well about how some operatives uh, from within the party, from within the state uh, party in Florida, uh, get most of the candidates to stay out of the Florida primary so that they can get Carter to run head-to-head against George Wallace so that they can kind of rid the South of the scourge of George Wallace and their reput- and their and their linkage with uh, the segregationist former governor of yeah. Alabama. And that turns out to actually help Carter at a key moment where uh, other candidates are starting to gain some momentum. And, and Carter worked the caucuses. He could do the math in ways that uh, the other primary candidates really had not. And uh, kind of in the way that uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, you know, shocked the uh, the, the Republicans uh, just a few years later. Uh, turns out winning in Iowa matters. It does. And I think people, you know, uh, continue every four years we have a debate over whether we should uh, deemphasize Iowa caucuses or change the order. Um, you know, is Iowa getting too much in terms of just financial reward and political reward from being there? Uh, but, you know, they, they managed to stay there. And I think even with a crowded field this year, uh, even with a primary that could end up to being a longer primary because of proportional representation on the Democratic side, uh, Iowa's going to play a big role again this year in terms of culling the field because 
that's just the way it works. People come out of Iowa. You have expectations yeah. for who's going to win, who's going to lose. And uh, so a lot of times those expectations are, are upset. So I went to be a newspaper editor in uh, in Atlanta in 1989. So uh, Carter's been out of office for almost a decade and, and Carter's cabinet and staff. But Georgia is uh, is still very much populated uh, by, by, uh, by people who were veterans of the Carter administration. Uh, one of the men I had to deal with uh, uh, due to uh, denominational issues was the uh, former attorney general of the United States, Griffin Bell. And mm-hmm. – uh, but Carter was uh, – was, I, I, what I discovered when I went to Georgia is that most Georgians who were politically active said they really didn't know Jimmy Carter. And it didn't mean that they didn't wow. have an acquaintance with him. It's just that they really didn't know him. Um, you talk about the fact that he really ran largely uh, at least in a pact with segregationists when he successfully ran for governor. But uh, but he ran as uh, I mean he operated as a governor as kind of a of a of a social liberal. In fact, you cite Randall Balmer, you know, saying basically mm-hmm. that he redeemed himself from his race uh, with his tenure mm-hmm. in office. But it, it led people wondering if they really knew who Jimmy Carter was. You know, I've been thinking about this, uh, his 70 run for governor, uh, because of the backlash to Joe Biden's comments about working with Senator Eastland in the, in the Senate, uh, who was a segregationist uh, Mississippi Republican. Because the import of Biden's comments, I thought they were poorly phrased, but the principle behind them was that you have to work with people who you might uh, disagree with and even think uh, stand for things that are wrong and morally repugnant. Um, And Carter's 1970 run for governor seems to be an example of that, because in 1966, he ran and lost and tried to basically run as a a racial moderate, uh, a racial progressive, where he he reached out to African-Americans. And in 1970, after going through a spiritual uh, awakening in, in the years in between, he runs this campaign that really um, courts the white supremacist vote, uh, Lester Maddox uh, and others, you know, people from the white citizens council groups and, and so on. Uh, and I asked Carter about this and he made an interesting comment. He said, I, I never said, I never met, never met a racist comment, but I also didn't do anything to, to irritate them. And uh, so he wins with their help and their votes were, were key to him winning. And then he turns around at the inaugural address and he makes the famous comment, the time for racial discrimination is over. And there are audible groans, according to newspaper accounts, in the crowd when he says yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and then he, he, goes, he goes on to appoint a high number of minorities to government positions uh, his Law Day speech in 1973 uh, or 1974, I forget which year that was, but that was the one where Kennedy was at, uh, is just a whole-scale indictment of the uh, Georgia legal and political establishment for not doing enough to help the poor and to help people who are in jail. Um, and somebody told me this the other day that I didn't even know, that when he was president, uh, he and his administration uh, cracked down on segregation academies in the South. Um, which, which I think created some backlash uh, among southern states. So uh, it's just it raises all kinds of interesting questions about um, what kind of compromises one has to make sometimes to make progress. Uh, and in politics, those become pretty uh, difficult questions. Well, and they're contextual. This was uh, during the, uh, the the 1970s. And by the way, I only want to quibble with you a little bit. James Eastland was a Democrat, not a Republican. Correct, uh, correct, yeah, correct. He, he was yeah, a, he somebody, was, else, somebody else actually just texted me the other day complaining about somebody on TV saying that. Yeah, no, he was a Dixiecrat until he, uh, he left right. office, uh, that, you know, a conservative Democrat. And as a matter of fact, with this controversy over Biden, I'm frustrated with the major media in, in intentionally not mentioning that every single one of the senators he's he's uh, criticized for communicating with were Democratic senators with a with with a very powerful hold on the Democratic caucus uh, in the Senate. So um, I, I don't think most in the media are leaving that out by accident. Uh, but, but and that really does change even the context of reporting on the current Biden controversy. He, he this was not just a Senate issue; it was a Democratic caucus in the Senate uh, issue. But I, I yeah that hit my button. Sorry. Uh, but no, you, it's okay. I mean, I, I, I just to respond to that, yeah. I, I totally understand uh, the the technical objection, but I also don't. 
I, we don't have to get into it. There's a whole debate on Twitter between, uh, you know, different people about what it means that Dixiecrats became, you know, kind of moved over to Republicans. Right. Um, but to me, I don't really feel that it's that significant. I know I know other people get upset right. about it. but Well, I mean, people like Eastland and Russell never did. Thur- uh, Strom. Thurman did, but uh, but anyway, no, that that that's another book you should write. Um, <laughs> con- consider that an assignment. Uh, but when it when it comes to uh, to Jimmy Carter, um, there were, there was a will there that was present, and one of the points you make in your book, and I think brilliantly so in the narrative, is that that will did not exist in Edward Kennedy, to uh, Ted Kennedy. Out of kind of the logic of his family, uh, you, you make clear, more or less had to run for president under the circumstances of the uh, the Democratic Party in, in 1980. But in that now infamous – and I watched it live that, – that now infamous interview with Roger Mudd when he was asked why he's running for president, uh, that, that it's the most awkward pause in the history of American politics. He didn't know why. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, do you remember where you were when you watched that? Yes, because I didn't have many options. I was in the living room of my parents' house, uh, and, and there weren't that many rooms, and there was only one television set, so that's where I was. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, the, I, I guess I'm not surprised that Al Mohler was, was watching Roger Mudd rather than Jaws that Sunday night. Um, but no, but so, no, yeah, no, that's yeah. exactly right. And I love, uh, was it Bob Dole's comment that 75% of, uh, of Americans yeah. watched Jaws, 25% watched the Roger <laughs> Mudd interview, and uh, they were watching the same movie. I think it. I think it goes back to. Uh, you have to kind of trace things back to the fact that when Ted Kennedy uh, graduates from UVA Law School um, after the 1960 election, he and he, he and his recently uh, wedded wife Joan, they want to move out west. They want to go maybe to Arizona, maybe go into law, maybe go into politics. Um, and instead of kind of charting his own path at that point, uh, obviously that's a move that would sort of take him out, out and away from his family's reach. But his father, uh, tells him he vetoes that he says, Nope, you have to go to Massachusetts and you have to get ready to, uh, basically be appointed or to run for the Senate in 1962. We're going to appoint a placeholder. Uh, and so from that moment, uh, his adult life and his career are really dictated by his father. And, um, and he, I think the other part that points that kind of gets to his lack of willfulness is that when you've been kind of given so much and not really allowed to exercise your will, perhaps that muscle uh, deteriorates. I mean, he was a, a child of a lot of privilege and and then also was sort of told what to do. Um, and I think it took him a long time in life to find a constructive way uh, to channel much of his energy. I mean, he channeled yeah. much of his energy into other pursuits that, you know, were, were immoral and uh, destructive, um, whether it's alcoholism or uh, sleeping with a lot of other women besides his wife. Um, I think towards you know the latter half of his life, he he found a lot of meaning in being a uh, constructive legislator and working with Republicans. Um, and uh, but you know there was just so much complication yeah. to his life and um, and a lot of tragedy too. That I think I think you can't overlook that as well. Yeah, that was the word I was about to use. And the tragedy I think most people would assume would come with the uh, the horrifying deaths of so many of his siblings. Uh, from uh, from the early 1940s on, and then in particular, two political assassinations. But, you know, the tragedy yeah. really was so much earlier than that. And right. uh, in your book, you cite that uh, that conversation that, uh, that Senator Kennedy uh, remembered in his memoirs, in which his father, when Ted was about 13 or 14, uh, sat him down and said, you can have a serious life or a non-serious life, Teddy. I'll still love you, whichever choice you make. But if you decide to lead a non-serious life, I won't have much time for you. You make up your mind. There are too many children here who are doing things that are interesting for me to do much with you. Just as a father and as a son, that's one of the most heartbreaking exchanges I've ever read. Yeah, and there are many ways in which his father was not an admirable guy. But I was also struck, as I learned about the ways in which him and his father – 
uh, I think during the time that he was ambassador to the UK, did have times where they bonded. Um, and, it, you know, Joe Kennedy Sr. is a is a, another complicated guy. Yes. He um, was, all, you know, was also quite unfaithful to his wife and, uh, you know, advocated for appeasement of Hitler. Um, but he was a very loving, affectionate father to his children as well. Um, and, you know, he, he was a comments, patriarch and I yeah. mean, in, in his own way, uh, that's the best word for him. He was the patriarch of a dynasty that he created out of his will. Yeah, I mean, his willfulness is actually similar <laughs> to Carter's. I've actually never com- thought about that comparison, but his will to, to success, power and, and money uh, is really formidable. Uh, we, we go back to that Roger Mudd uh, interview, uh, CBS, with uh, with Ted Kennedy. And by the way, the reason why most Americans, including I think uh, uh, the reason why I tuned in with such interest was that, that the network had teased that mm-hmm. uh, Roger Mudd was going to press him on Chappaquiddick. Uh, and, oh, wow. And that, that was spellbinding, by the way, and horrifying. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm myself uh, – you know, barely 20 years old. And, and it, it was just it was a, a horrifying moral documentary. And Kennedy completely failed to acquit himself in that interview. But it was it, it was subsequent to that, that uh, Roger Mudd asked him why he was running for president. And I, I won't even read as you record. It was a 336 word non answer. And then you quote Roger Mudd as saying, oh, my God, he doesn't know. He doesn't know why he's running. And he didn't. Yeah. Yeah, and you uh, you watched it in the moment. Um, I as somebody I went back and I had to go to Nashville to find the full uh, footage of this interview. Yeah, and I watched it in its entirety. And to me, forty years later, the thing that stood out was the first thirty minutes, which was all about Chappaquiddick. Right. And I guess because I've read so many accounts of his answer to the question of why do you want to be president, that was anticlimactic because his answer, if you really do watch it without any pretense, uh, is not great. But it's also it's also as if he it's not as if he's uh, unable to answer it at all. There are words coming out of his mouth. They don't. It's the look on his face. They don't add up to a lot. What's that? I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just have to say it, it's the uh, it, it's the look on his face. It, it's it's the panic mm. in his eyes mm-hmm. when he's asked that question. And uh, you you make this point in the book. I would put it a bit differently. Uh, if you're going to run against an incumbent president of your own party, you've got to have a reason for running. And and you would think mm-hmm. that if anyone would have an answer, and and you go to the greatest moment of his rhetorical life, which was the 1980 Democratic Convention, uh, the Dream Will Never Die speech. If he mm-hmm. had had that speech in his answer right. to Roger Mudd, he he might well have won that nomination race. It's possible. I mean, I think there's circumstances. I think the hostages actually played a huge role in both keeping Kennedy from the nomination and keeping Carter from the presidency at the mm-hmm. end of the day, much like the economy often dictates the terms of, uh, of an outcome of an election. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think if you want to look at the difference between his, his answer to uh, Mudd and his speech at the Garden, uh, it's pretty obvious what the difference is, right? I mean, uh, on the front end, it's like you're you're just jumping into something that you just assumed was going to be a cakewalk. You haven't really done the hard work to think about the answer. All your life has been spent giving being given things on a silver platter. And 10 months later, nine months later, he's gone through the gauntlet of a presidential primary where he has traveled the country, met a lot of regular Americans who you don't meet in Washington and uh, and really kind of looked himself in the mirror uh, and decided maybe a little bit more who he is, who he actually is. Uh, and, you know, you also have to factor in the, the, the thing that uh, Rob, Bob Trump told me, which is that when he started off his campaign, they were already running a general election strategy, figuring right. that they would be able to easily beat Jimmy Carter. And so they were already kind of running to the middle. And what happens is after he loses Iowa, he gives the Georgetown speech in which he starts to move back towards a more uh, full-throated defense of liberal, uh, liberal democratic values. And, um, and that's also part of it. His heart is more in it as the campaign goes on because he doesn't have to kind of fake it. 
Um, there's so many things to talk about here, but you could argue that uh, that that Roger Mudd had at least something to do with uh, with ending Kennedy's political prospects for the nomination. You can also argue that uh, sure. that Ted Koppel had something to do with Jimmy Carter losing the general election with uh, Nightline and uh, Ted Koppel, and it wasn't as I remember then. It didn't even have a name. It was just uh, this new news program put at the end in order to review. The Iran hostage crisis every night, and and, uh, mm-hmm. and then he started giving a number. This the one hundred and eleventh day of the captivity mm-hmm. of the American hostages uh, in Iran, and it was just a steady drumbeat. But you mm-hmm. also talk about let, let's talk about Carter as president. Um, it, it's very difficult to come up with a philosophy of of government that that absolutely defines Carter. He was he was on so many issues very liberal. Uh, especially, I mean, I think of uh, of the White House conference on families and and, and uh, events such as that. Uh, Carter's support for the ERA and uh, and for abortion rights. Although he 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 stated he was personally opposed to abortion. You see that argument that Cuomo would make uh, quintessentially in 1984 at Notre Dame. But uh, but th- there's also the sense in which it's Jimmy Carter, the hostage to an unbelievable array of circumstances. Uh, and mm-hmm. in, in the United States and in the world, uh, j- just on the brink of uh, of the 1980s, it was really a very difficult time all around. Yeah, and those events came to a head in '79. Um, at the end of the year, you have the hostages taken, but in the spring and summer, you have an energy crisis um, and inflation, and those two things together really put the screws to Americans. And the energy crisis and the gas lines, and then eventually riots. Uh, kind of put the country on edge in a way that I imagine was felt a little bit similar to the uh, race riots and assassinations of the 60s and probably probably prompted some PTSD on the part of many Americans um, because you had these gas lines where people would have to wait. Uh, This happened in 73, but they had to wait um, sometimes hours, sometimes overnight to get gas. The violence broke out. People were getting stabbed and shot. There was a trucker's strike. And so there was a sense of sort of the country coming apart. Um, and uh, Carter, this is what all leads up to the, the, the Malay's speech. Carter is away. He's in Asia. I think it's significant that he's been traveling for much of a month and has these three or four days scheduled to be in Hawaii yep. uh, to kind of get some downtime and to actually rest. And, um, and they have to cut it into about an hour. <laughs> yep. Talk about uh, a sense of uh, being overwhelmed. You, you come back from that much travel to the other side of the world, uh, and you're not thinking straight. You're not thinking uh, clearly. Uh, and he comes back to confront this crisis, uh, he he disappears to Camp David and does the 10-day Camp David summit and then gives the Malay speech, which, by the way, I actually found the Malay speech um, to be quite a good speech, to be honest. Well, a lot of people thought it was immediately after it was given. Right. Yes. It but was, it's not remembered as such. No, and he never even used the word malaise. Uh, rather, the, the word malaise kind of became the definitional word of the speech. But the problem was, and and this gets to a huge question of consequence, the problem was that Jimmy Carter still appeared to be a victim of circumstances, unable to get on top of the political equation uh, with a a, a chaotic administration that he had helped make more chaotic and uh, with messaging that was going in every direction. And, And but the political challenge to him in his own party didn't come from the right. It came from the left. I want you to help put that in context. How was it that in 1980, uh, mm. the left that had been electorally destroyed in 1972 in the McGovern race, it, it, it came right. back in, in, in Teddy Kennedy, and uh, it, it, it's just a huge part of the Democratic Party's identity. It, it, try to explain that. You, you do in your book very well. Uh, I think what you're talking about is a section where I talk I, – I, I lean pretty heavily on Tom Edsel and Mary Edsel's book, uh, Chain Reaction, where they talk about the fact that Watergate in 74 gave Democrats a false sense of confidence. They, as we often are in our – whatever moment we're living in, could not see the tectonic plates shifting underneath them. Uh, in terms of electoral constituencies and coalitions and the South 
moving wholesale against uh, Democrats and over to the Republicans. And so because of Watergate, they felt like momentum was on their side, uh, the wind was at their backs, and the country shared their values. And um, one of the things I found most interesting was that the morning or two, a, morning, a day or two after Kennedy's speech at the convention in August of 1980, the New York Times editorial page, uh, which uh, is more liberal now than it was then, but it's always been to the left, um, talked about how Kennedy's liberalism was out of step with the times. Um, this was, a, you know, the 70s, as you know, because you lived it, um, was sort of a, a, a backlash to the excesses of the 60s. And all of this turmoil in 79 even made people hungry for stability and, uh, and for a leader who projected strength and optimism. It does tell us something really interesting that in the year 2019, a book about the presidential election of 1980 is this compelling and makes this conversation so interesting. And in some sense, it does look like we are looking back through the lens of history at a time now largely forgotten by many Americans, and frankly, that happened long before most Americans were yet born. But at the same time, it also looks strangely like the headlines of today. And that's another part of the story. Well, looking at the uh, the, the insurgent left, you might say, uh, it, it really did represent in a lot of ways, though, also the, the power of the Democratic Party establishment that always saw Carter as an outsider. He declared himself to be. And in one sense, uh, Senator Edward Kennedy was the consummate insider. And oddly enough, ironically, he continued that throughout the entirety of his career in the Senate that lasted many, many years after Jimmy Carter left the White House. There, There are so many ironies in this story. Yeah, I found that interesting, too, that it was an insurgency against the incumbent by the establishment. Um, I think that's what you're getting at, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I found that interesting, too. I mean, I think a lot of categories are flipped in that in that thing, I, in, that, in that way. I find it interesting to think about uh, the comparisons with Trump and between Trump and Carter, because there are similarities in the way that they both despise the establishment. They both despise the Washington insider. Um, I, I think one difference between them is that even when things are chaotic, that kind of works to Trump's advantage. Whereas, uh, and part of that is the time in which we live. Uh, but whereas with Carter, chaos just reflected very badly on him. He he did not have the the the, the kind of personality that could deal with that or project through that a sense of control, whereas Trump sort of thrives on chaos. It's a very interesting uh, contrast. Yeah, I didn't mean to jump so quickly to the present, but to continue that thought, I've had the reflection that uh, Jimmy Carter was an interregnum in the Democratic Party's power and uh, the the structural influences. I uh, I think Donald Trump is a redefinition on the Republican side. I don't I don't think there is a uh, there's an old Republican Party structure just waiting to step back in uh, after Donald Trump. I think it's a different different end game. Yeah, and there's also been people who have said that um, Trump might be similar to Carter in the sense, and I don't know that this is true, but the theory is that Carter represents sort of a final fracturing uh, of the coalition that held Democrats in power from the New Deal to to Reagan. For about 50 years, they were in control of Congress for most of that time. Uh, they didn't hold the presidency uh, as as in as much of a dominant way, but they, they certainly held it at times. But they really did control the Congress for all 50 of those years. Others have said Trump represents sort of a similar breaking up of republic, traditional Republican constituencies. He's certainly remaking the party. Um, you know, I, I don't think Republicans have dominated politics for yeah. the last 40 years like Democrats did for the, for the previous 50. True. Um, but but there's an interesting way in which uh, I mean people are going to debate this actually for decades uh, what this actually represents. It certainly is a radical shift in the party. 
Yeah, and a lot of it will have to do with whether or not Donald Trump wins a second term, because that redefines a presidency. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, no one knew that better than either Jimmy Carter or George H.W. Bush, that mm-hmm. uh, you, you, a two-term president doesn't get to write his own history, but a one-term president gets to write very little of that history. It's, it's all written onto that, uh, that one term. Uh, as you think about well uh, Ted Kennedy, and and we think about um, and, and we think about liberalism in the Democratic Party, this old school liberalism that Ted Kennedy became the the the, the representative icon uh, for. Uh, how do you read the the, the insurgency? And uh, I'll just put it this way: uh, what appears to be a demonstrated leftward shift in the Democratic Party now. I, w- I want to ask you, your senior political correspondent now. Sure. Uh, how much continuity and how much discontinuity uh, exists between the liberalism of, uh, of of a Ted Kennedy and the liberalism of uh, of many of the Democratic uh, candidates now? It's a great question. I have – writing this book presented that question in a different form, which – at the time that I was writing it, the, the form of the question was, where does Barack Obama sit in, in the trajectory of the Democratic Party? If you look at, um, you know, Kennedy in the, in the 70s and into the 80s, uh, and then Clinton, and then Obama, it, it's hard to chart the course there. It's, it's not exactly clear. But what I do think is clear is that I think candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders um, – I think they are in some ways throwbacks to the kind of liberalism that Kennedy and other Democrats of that era stood for, because um, if you isolate out economic policy and their focus on income inequality and their focus on the poor, that's different than what Bill Clinton talked about, which was the middle class. I just read Steve Kornacki's book, The Red and the Blue, and had him on my podcast. Um, and Obama did this as well. Clinton and Obama, the two Democratic presidents between Carter and now, um, they talked about the middle class. And what we see now, uh, the Poor People's Campaign here in D.C. held a conference this, uh, last Monday talking about the poor. And, that, and that's a shift. And I think one of the things that um, – uh, has has caused the Democrats to potentially move away from a focus on uh, the the poor versus the middle class. The theory, anyway, is is that starting in the mid '80s and into the Clinton era, Democrats, in order to keep up with Republicans, started t- taking more money from corporations and from Wall Street. Uh, and so that's one way in which I think you can connect modern-day Democrats to uh, Ted Kennedy. On social issues, uh, it's, you know, I think there's also some connections. Teddy Kennedy was um, talking about gay rights back uh, in that time period, which was, which was uh, not a lot of people were doing that back then. Um, Teddy, I, I believe, I didn't look a lot into this. You might remember more about this than, than I do, but I believe on abortion he was pro-life at one point or close to it. Does that sound right to you? Well, all the Kennedys were until right. uh, basically um, – it was uh, it was the Robert Kennedy candidacy in 1968 that led them to convene the Kennedy family to convene a group of Catholic theologians at Hyannisport in order to wow. uh, to find a way. And that's when uh, when post Vatican II they came up with the idea that uh, a Catholic politician could have uh, basically two different dimensions it could be privately opposed to abortion, uh, but yeah. uh, but but not. Uh, but not to impose that uh, by means of, of government until there was a consensus. That was, that, that was the argument from the late 1960s. But by the okay. time you get to the present, the, the most amazing thing right now is that, is that you're not going to find a major Democrat saying, I mean, look at what happens to, what's happened to Joe Biden on the Hyde Amendment. Uh, it, it, it's hard right. to imagine a Democrat now saying that abortion is a moral wrong, even as their personal conviction. That, that, that I think, is a huge shift. And Teddy Kennedy died before that shift in the party. That's that's true. And uh, I've been exploring this very issue on my podcast. I interviewed Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, who is um, part of the Poor People's Campaign. He grew up in rural North Carolina uh, as a as a conservative white evangelical. 
he's now obviously a progressive uh, Christian. Um, and we talked about some of the things that Reverend William Barber was doing to kind of create distance between the Democratic candidates and uh, and his organization. A lot of this is sort of uh, asking the crowd at their event not to applaud in sort of a, a rally for him. He also asked Pete Buttigieg to move into the crowd at a rally in front of the White House. Sort of these interesting um, symbolic moves. But I asked Jonathan uh, about uh, prophetic distance when it comes to policy. And he talked about, um, because I do think that, that you can make a critique of conservative evangelicalism as not having enough prophetic distance from the Republican Party or from politics in general. But I asked Jonathan, you know, what are progressives doing uh, in Christianity to, to maintain that distance? And he talked about immigration a little bit, but I pressed him on abortion, and there wasn't a whole lot of distance between his uh, position on abortion and the Democratic parties. And uh, I had a conversation with another person uh, about the fact that there just isn't a lot of uh, willingness to grapple with the issue of when life begins, which, you know, there's a lot of complexity in my view to the abortion issue in terms of politics. Um, but, uh, on the, on the left, there's not a lot of willingness to grapple with that question, which makes it sort of just two sides hurling, uh, invective at each other. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's yeah. part of why it is that way. Yeah, one of the uh, uh, worldview exercises I do with uh, with students is that uh, I sometimes hand them uh, the 1960 platforms of the Democratic and Republican parties, but I take the title page off and uh, and and uh, black out the party names. And when you look at most of the positions of 1960, you really have a hard time knowing: is this the Democratic platform or is this the Republican right. platform? There there is this massive Cold War uh, consensus. Of, of right. the 1950s and 60s, and and that holds together on many issues for a very long time. Uh, 72 is a radical departure uh, in in the McGovern platform, but on abortion, I mean, this is by by now a part of my Augustinian reading of history is that political parties. Uh, when left to their own devices, follow their own logic more consistently. And I, I think that's what's happening. I think, you know, we've got a secularizing, and I don't mean this in a partisan sense, just kind of as objectively as I can. We've got a more secularizing, progressivist party living, you know, kind of following out that logic. And uh, and then the, at the same time, you've got, and when you look at some of the bills being passed by states like Alabama and uh, human personhood bills, heartbeat bills, uh, the, this is the logic of a, of a pro-life position now embraced by the Republican Party working its way out. It's not even everywhere. But there is, at this point, no external pressure to prevent the two parties from moving uh, in these two directions towards their own, uh, you know, worldview consistency. And uh, I think that's what's different. You know, we, there's not a Soviet Union looming as a great threat that, uh, that, that maintained a certain consensus. I don't know what this means for the future of America, but it does make me look back to 1980 with the thought, in some ways, it looks kind of quaint now. Um, oh, yeah. Because yeah. There, there, despite all the conflict in your book, which makes the book so fascinating, and despite the fact that Jimmy Carter lost in this massive landslide to Ronald Reagan, and that, as you say, is, 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 is kind of the bigger story, the reality is that uh, uh, both the left and the right still had a common enemy. In 1980, right. and uh, and and so there was a there was a huge foreign policy consensus still in 1980. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and on many other issues, it's it's just a different age. Yeah, uh, when I started writing the book, it was 2013, 2014, and um, all of the drama in the book actually seemed really significant, and it still does, as you said, in some ways. But it's in the in the time in between 2014 and now, with the rise of Trump. Uh, and the, all the ways that that has rippled through our politics and our country, uh, we're in a radically different time even from four years ago. I just want to say one other thing yeah. about abortion. I think it's uh, – I think the Democrats, because of Trump, I think the Democrats have c- – could have an opportunity to pick up a lot of voters – uh, who are religious, who are Christian, uh, maybe other faiths who are maybe even conservative on some things. I know there's plenty of uh, even young people who are evangelicals who um, probably would be interested in voting Democratic, but I think the abortion issue is one 
area that's really hard for a lot of people to get over. Uh, and um, I think the Democrats' inflexibility on that is is costing them some votes. I don't know how many, but I know there's I know there's it's not a small number. Yeah, I think uh, that's exactly right. I've made the same point on the briefing. I uh, I think we'll come back to it again and again. And uh, it does not make sense from a general election standpoint. But one of the points your book, right. I mean, the entire premise of your book is you can't talk about the general election until you get to win the nomination. And that's the big story that yeah. makes your book so fascinating. It's uh, so what, it, what it will take to win the Democratic nomination in 2020 might well be what it takes to lose the general election on issues like this. And that's a particular problem for the Democratic Party. Again, I, 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 don't, I don't mean that in a partisan way, but that was the problem in 72. <laughs> it's, it's the problem again. Yeah, and this is why I think uh, the way that we structure our primaries is so important and we're, I think, worth more of a conversation than what we have. I don't think I would ever advocate for going back to the old system, but there are values in the old system that relate to uh, having – that are actually federalist in nature, that relate to the way that the federalist papers lay out the way our government should work, that include more inputs for people with experience and expertise in politics uh, to have a say in who their party, which is a private group, not a constitutionally uh, um, designated system – they would have more say in who their party nominates uh, because they would have more of a sense of who could actually win and govern well. And I think right now we have democratized our primaries so much on both sides that it's really just run by uh, people who um, are average consumers of politics, some at the grassroots and some not. Uh, And and I don't think it helps us uh, nominate people who are our best choices. Uh, I am actually in total agreement with that. And uh, oddly enough, I think on the Republican side, uh, the person to blame in one sense is Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who, uh, mm-hmm. who, who pushed for such reforms as he established it in the Republican Party to democratize it, take it out of the hands of party bosses. I agree with you. I think they're Federalist reasons so based upon that logic um, to have more of a House and Senate approach uh, to the party nomination Correct. process. And by the, by the way, oddly enough, even in 2016, it was the Democratic Party that had that with the uh, so-called That's superdelegates. Right. Yeah. Uh, but the opposition to that was such that that party's now changed its policies probably to make the problem worse. Uh, the, the, the party probably would not be pushed in such a liberal direction in 20 if you still had the grandees of the party with uh, with at least outsized influence. So here we are again. It's 1972 in America. That's absolutely right. And I will just say Jonathan Rausch uh, at Brookings, who writes for The Atlantic and other places, he's done some of the best writing at the popular level about this idea of the fact that we've democratized our primaries so much that actually the outcomes of the primaries are less democratic because they don't serve the majority of the country. They serve a small minority of the country, the hardcore uh, devotees of each party. It has been uh, it's been so much fun to talk with you. I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, all good things must come to an end. But before we uh, we conclude, I want to ask you the question that hangs over the end of your book, and that is. Is are, are, are we the creatures of our own character and personality to the extent that by the time you reach the end of your book, Kennedy is more Kennedy than ever before. And even in his post-presidency, you kind of make the point that Carter is more Carter than ever before. I, this raises theological issues for me. I, did, I, I had to ponder these. I want to throw it to you. When you say Kennedy is more Kennedy, what does that mean? Well, he comes to define himself saying, I am the liberal conscience of the Democratic Party. He, uh, he owns the fact that he's going to be the lion of the Senate. He, he decides he's uh, Teddy now. He's not just the brother of Jack and Bobby. He's, yeah. uh, he's Teddy Kennedy. He's the patriarch in his own sense. And uh, like you say, his private life, even, even in the latter days, was chaotic, uh, especially with all the Florida escapades. But his public life was, uh, w- was pretty much a political straight line. And he stayed in the Senate, I mean, until he died. Uh, And meanwhile, Jimmy Carter, um, you know, out of office and and, and with uh, the most influential post-presidency of any president since Theodore Roosevelt, uh, again, he seems to become ever more Jimmy Carter by your telling of the story. 
And, and what is the theological question out of that? I think well, I, just, I, I, I think that personal identity. I mean, I think we, we would like to think yeah. that maybe we change more over time than we do. And, uh, you know, one, one, one of the big questions is whether, you know, we've just become so much ourselves that, uh, that we and, – and obviously as a Christian, I believe that uh, it's a different story for Christians, uh, you know, by the, by the influence of, uh, of the Holy Spirit in our lives and conforming us to Christ. But just in, the, in this grand scope of history – um, I don't know. It, it just seems like a, a certain form of the fact that the decisions we make early in life, the character we take on early in life, the personality that we first introduce to the public may well be only amplified by the time they uh, they, they say something at our funeral. Well, you know, uh, I'll, I'll reference an interesting comment from Tim Keller's book on marriage, which is he says that we're all mar- we, if we are married for any long period of time, we end up being married to three, four or five different people over the course of our marriage. Um, and maybe uh, maybe you disagree with that based on what you just said. I'm not quite sure. Um, but I guess my take, if you want to use Kennedy as an example, is. Um, was he more himself at the end uh, because of the decisions he made early in his life? I don't know that I would see it that way. Um, and I'm not really interpreting this through a um, Christological or theological sense, but I just right. think from a humanistic point of view, if that's the right term, uh, I think he overcame um, some real challenges in his character and his upbringing and in, and in the context of his life, I think he endured. Um, and uh, and his life is a mixed bag, but uh, as a writer of history, uh, there's a quote from Karl Barth early in the in the book that, um, you know, we owe the subjects that we write about uh, a sense of empathy and understanding and and, uh, and grace, and um, that's the way I attempted to approach it. Well, uh, John, I think you succeeded, and uh, and you're you're just really good at uh, at very insightful and uh, and compelling narrative, and uh, that's true in your political Thank you writing. Much. You're welcome. It's true in your political writing as well as in this book. But my final question is going to be: What is next? I I, I know you've got to have another project you're working on. Well, um, I have thought about writing a book um, about growing up evangelical, but. That's only an idea at this point. Um, I've long been interested in the ways that uh, the context in which I grew up in, um, which was charismatic Christianity in the late 70s and 80s, um, became, you know, kind of fed into the reformed circles around the turn of the century, um, the ways that politics interacts with evangelicalism of, you know, I grew up at a time when the moral majority was pretty powerful. Um, I didn't ever find the moral majority to be compelling. Um, But uh, there's just a lot to the last 40 years of evangelical Christianity, and I have my own experience, and then there's the the broader political and cultural lens. So that's an idea I'm kicking around, but it's not very far along right now. Well, it's interesting. I, uh, I will tell you what I say to other, other writers that, uh, that I find uh, very powerful and compelling. You write it, I'll read it, and we'll talk about it. <laughs> so, very good. Well, I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. John, thanks for being with us today for Thinking in Public. I'm so glad John Ward was with me for this conversation today. Like so many of the books I read, my copy of Camelot's End is thoroughly marked. I have underlining and highlighting and words written in the margins. I have my own notation system. I I look at this book and I want to talk about something on almost every page. And it's because this is an unfolding narrative written with a great deal of both historical and political insight. I should say that it's also written with biographical insight. We see the story of two men, Jimmy Carter and Edward Kennedy, facing off in a presidential nomination race that reshaped history. We are looking at a specific time. We're looking at the late 1970s and then the pivotal year 1980. We are looking at two different massive political parties of tremendous influence. Most importantly in this case, looking at the inner workings and dynamic of the Democratic Party in that transition from the 70s to the 80s. And when we're talking about personalities, 
There are few personalities more interesting than the two major figures in this book, Senator Edward Kennedy and former President Jimmy Carter. They're an amazing pair. It made the 1980 Democratic presidential race not only epic, but still a matter of interest even now. In the year 2019, we're talking about almost 40 years later. But we're also talking as a new presidential election cycle stares us in the face. We're watching the Democratic presidential nomination race taking shape right now. You can draw a line from 1980 to 2020, and that's a 40-year period that finds Americans doing the very same thing all over again. Some of those connections are obvious, some less obvious, but the only way to know them is to read the book. That's why I put the situation as I did at the end of the conversation. It's what I say to authors. You write the book, I'll read the book, and then we'll talk about the book. I enjoyed doing just that today with John Ward. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.